When the Eternal your God has cut off the nations whose land the Eternal your God gives you, and you succeed them, and dwell in their cities and in their houses. Now, he was speaking here in Deuteronomy, summarizing the first five books of the Bible in Israel's history, and they were preparing to go into uh, the Promised Land shortly thereafter, <clears throat> led by Joshua, since Moses couldn't go. Uh, we today are on the cusp of going in, back into the promised land that God originally intended. Now that is true whether you think it is here or whether you think it is in the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is full of ungodly people, Jews, uh, Protestants, uh, Muslims, none of whom uh, follow the true God of the Bible. So there are ungodly peoples and nations over there, just as where I believe the promised land is here in this nation, you have people who are not true followers of God's truth inhabiting all the land within and around that which was originally the promised land. So we are waiting for God to take them away or to provide a means whereby we might succeed them in the land. So our situation this very day is the same situation that Moses was addressing the people of Israel uh, about in his day. So the parallel is very, very close, and we'll see that the instruction he gives them also fits with us in dealing with the peoples, the nations, or the nation around us, and other nations too, for that matter. <clears throat> as well as those who are in this nation but are not a part of the nation of spiritual Israel, the church. So, we are at the same spot these people were. Verse 2, You shall separate three cities for you in the midst of your land which the eternal your God gives you to possess it. You shall prepare you a way and divide the coasts of your land which the eternal your God gives you to inherit into three parts that every slayer may flee there. So what he's introducing here is the cities of refuge, or reintroducing it and reminding them of it as they go into the promised land. And he explains why this was to be done. There were three zones within that small area of the promised land. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee there, that he may live... Whoso kills his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hated not in time past. And he explains that he's talking about an accidental death here, not a willful one. And he explains it in verse 5. As when a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to hew wood, fire cutting in other words, and his hand, firewood cutting, and his hand fetches a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle, and lights upon his neighbor that he die, he shall flee into one of those cities and live. So, the death in this case would have been accidental, but the brothers, the father of the man who was killed, might not accept that. They might say, hey, this was done on purpose. It wasn't an accident at all. So, there needed to be a way to provide safety for that person who had inadvertently killed someone, actually had done so, but was 
guiltless in terms of will or purpose, totally accidental. And he explains, verse 6, Lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long and slay him, whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch as he hated him not in time past, or it was not a willful slaying. So, you know, we get very, very upset in an emotional rush perhaps sometimes. Given time, we might settle down and think more logically, think the issue through and realize, well, yeah, this obviously was an accident. But in the heat of emotion, we can sometimes do things that would be in themselves a crime, like slaying a man who had accidentally killed someone, not doing it on purpose. Wherefore I command you, saying, You shall separate three cities for you. And if the Eternal your God enlarge your coast, as he has sworn to your fathers, and give you all the land which he promised to give to your fathers, so as they went in, they were to receive a smaller area, and later on, God would expand it. That was his intent. If you shall keep all these commandments, verse 9, to do them, which I command you this day, to love the Eternal your God, to walk ever in his ways, then shall you add three cities more for you beside these three. In other words, they were in a smaller area, so they were to designate three cities that were within range of you being able to get away until your culpability in a, a death was determined. Were you innocent or guilty of murder, or was it just an accident? We might apply some things today. If you're texting and driving and kill someone, or if you're drunk and driving and kill someone, is that an accident, or is that something that is a sin? Now, those things are against the laws of the land, but I submit to you that if you are doing something that is recognized as dangerous, that could cause someone's death, and you go ahead and do it, that is a sin before God because you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. By doing something that even society recognizes is very, very dangerous, becomes idolatry. Because you are putting your desire to communicate with your friends or relatives or whatever ahead of the safety of your neighbor. Maybe we don't think of those things, but texting and driving, I think, is an absolute sin before God. It is highly dangerous. I have tried it in the past and found that in looking at that phone and trying to punch in letters, it takes your attention almost 100% from the road. And that is why it has been made illegal in many, many areas, and will be and should be in all areas. It's not just a rule. It is truly dangerous to your friends and neighbors. We need to think about those things and the spiritual application of them. I don't know that talking on the phone while you're driving would fit in quite the same category, uh, 
it can be somewhat dangerous depending on circumstances. Most areas have not outlawed it because they haven't seen uh, that much of a difference or any difference in mortality or accident rates when people are talking on the phone. But in Nevada now, it is law that you cannot use a handheld device, period, whether talking or texting if you were driving a car. So they apparently see some area of danger to other drivers and to yourself in so doing. So we need to be sure that we, as followers of God, are considering the principles in all the things that we do, lest we do something that is not loving our neighbor as ourselves. So that uh, is a principle that can be extrapolated to many, many different situations. I won't take a lot of time on it, but uh, let's understand that idolatry is putting yourself ahead of God. We'll discuss that a little more, a little further down here when we get into another issue. <clears throat> but think about the impact of these things and everything that we do. Uh, uh, verse 10, uh, that innocent blood be not shed in your land, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance, and so blood be upon you. So he does say here, in so many words, that innocent blood should not be shed. Uh, we need to be very, very careful in what we do in relationship to others to make sure we do not shed innocent blood. If we go into the woods to cut wood, let's say, we need to be sure if we're using an axe that the head is very firmly attached to the axe. Uh, that would be loving our brother as ourselves. Uh, we should be very careful if it's a chainsaw uh, that uh, where we put the blade of that saw in relationship to our neighbor who might be working with us. Or be very aware if we're cutting down a tree where he's standing before it falls. You know, there are a lot of things in the woods that are dangerous. So we need to think about those things. And even so, at times, true accidents do happen. Many with thinking uh, and preparation might be prevented, but still in all, they will happen, even under the best of circumstances. And in those cases, God provided a way whereby a trial might be uh, administered or the issue looked into to see if there was a motive of killing. <clears throat> and he contrasts that then beginning in verse 11. But if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally, that he die, and flees into one of these cities. Then the elders of his city shall send, and fetch him from there, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. So, either way, a death occurs. But motive is always important. If it's truly an accident, there was no motive to kill, but if there's somebody that you dislike and you find a way to cause their demise in whatever form, then you should be penalized for that. So it was up to the authorities in the land uh, to determine innocence or guilt and to try to, the best they could, determine what motive might have been there or not been there. 
Verse 12, then the elders of this city, see, it's not up to uh, the majority vote of the people of Israel, but the elders of the city. Uh, <clears throat> verse 13, your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. Then he changes the subject, verse 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the eternal your God gives you to possess it. We do surveys and put stakes in the ground now to survey land, uh, customarily in this nation. But back then, they piled up, they determined where their corners were to be, <clears throat> and they piled up stones to mark their corners. And in the middle of the night, someone might go out and decide he wants to move them over three or twenty feet, or a mile, or, you know, depending on the size. Uh, we weren't to do that. Now, if, if everybody agrees to move it, that's an entirely different matter. But you to move it without the agreement of your neighbor is a sin or a transgression against that neighbor. In other words, the parties need to agree upon the adjustment if the landmark is to be removed or moved. Now, verse 15 explains something in connection with, well, 15 through 21. Uh, explain something in connection to Matthew 18 that I think is important for us to, to understand from God's perspective all the way back here because uh, this is whence that passage in Matthew 18 comes. Verse 15, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin and any sin that he sins. So, if two people are somewhere and one sees the other sin, that sin is not to be mentioned, it is not to be risen up against, or that person called into account for. Let's see that. Any sin, or any iniquity, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So, if there are is there's the one doing the sin, and there are two or three other people there who actually are eyewitnesses of that, then the matter can be considered, uh, brought before the authorities, looked into and settled, as we shall see. But it can't be one-on-one. -on -one. I mean even murder, and maybe especially murder because it's so easy for one person to concoct something against someone they don't like or have reason to want to do or whatever their motive might be. So he said, she said, or he said, he said, or she said, she said, does not cut it with God. If there's not more than one witness... It is not brought up. If a false witness rise, verse 16, up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, 
Then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the eternal, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. So if an issue came up where it was he said, she said, it could be taken and looked in. Maybe that contradicts what I just said. There is not to be one witness witnessing against someone else of their sin. But if the controversy comes up where somebody is making that kind of claim, then it is to be taken to the authorities that have been set up in the land in those days, whether it was the priests, uh, the Levites, whether it was judges, if they had judges at that time, or the king, as in Solomon's case. It could be looked into, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and has testified falsely against his brother. Strike what I said earlier, one to one can come, but it must be diligently looked into by those who are in authority. And if it turns out that it is a false witness... Then shall you do to him as he had thought to have done to his brother. So shall you put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And your eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if someone comes and makes a claim against someone... And it turns out that it is a lying or a false witness or has no basis, then whatever they wanted done to that person has to be done to them. If you want someone disfellowshipped for something you think you saw or because you have something against them and make an accusation or whatever, then when it turns out that it was not true, you are the one who suffers the penalty that you wanted done to someone else. You see how that can create a certain fear of gossip, of rumor, of false accusation. If we have it turn around and the penalty is brought upon us, if we're the one who did the backbiting, the backstabbing, the false accusation. Now, it might be that it turns out that you misread motive, you misread circumstances, and you might say, I'm sorry, I withdraw that, uh, and you might be shown mercy in that case. But if you press an issue where you think something was wrong, and it may not have been, then that is on you. God makes it very, very clear that everyone, when a false accusation is made, needs to hear and fear and not be allowed to go there. The same is true in Matthew 18. If the brother sin against you, you go to your brother alone, not to accuse, not to bring punishment upon, but to make sure that the relationship between you and that one who sinned against you is repaired. The whole object is not to cause someone to be judged, 
not to cause someone necessarily to admit a sin. The whole purpose of Matthew 18 is to gain your brother and fix the relationship that has been damaged as a result of what someone did or said, perhaps. In other words, our relationships are very, very important, one with another, as the family of God. And if someone does something or says something that causes offense or is truly a sin, then you are to go to that brother not in any form of accusation, not to draw a confession out of them or hold their feet to the fire. That is not the purpose whatsoever. And if you come with a chip on your shoulder to prove them wrong, your relationship will not be repaired. It will not be fixed. In fact, it will be worsened and you will be driven further apart. So motive, again, is very, very important. You go with a motive of trying to fix, to repair, to enhance, to make that relationship better when the conversation is done. Then if you can't repair it on that level, you take two or three witnesses, and I've said this before, not your two best buddies who will take your side, and then go accuse the person. You've still got the wrong motive. You've still got the wrong attitude. You're going there to prove to them that they're a sinner. And how are they supposed to react to that? They're supposed to grovel and admit it and repent and cry bitter tears and so on in order for you to be satisfied emotionally. No. The purpose in that case is to help them perhaps see that they did hurt you and what they did and to cause them to understand that and to repair the relationship. That is what God wants, is healers of the breach between God and man and between man and man. We have a lot of breaches or dysfunctional or failed relationships within the church today. And ultimately, God wants those resolved. He's going to start with 10% who have proper motives, who have right attitudes, who want to gain their brothers, and who want to serve God with all their hearts. 10%, God's tithe, to come together and to set an example of peace and safety, harmony and cooperation and love. That's his goal and purpose here in the end time in the latter temple. In this place will I bring peace, Haggai 2.9. So, we need very, very strongly and deeply to consider God's purpose in beginning a gathering. It is to set an example of love, peace, and cooperation, not squabbling and fighting and backbiting, and hurting, and gossip, and rumor, and accusation, and implying motives to people. That is not God's way. So we are here as an advanced team to begin that process. I firmly believe that. And we need to deeply consider this principle in our lives with each other here. So, if a controversy does arise, you need 
two or three as eyewitnesses to go and make that point. And if it cannot be settled on that level, it's such a serious breach, infraction, sin, or whatever, that it cannot be resolved on that level, then it is to go to the authorities or the judges which shall be in those days. So, at one point it was the Levites, at another point it was the Levites and the judges, at another point it was the king. In the New Testament, it is those whom God has appointed to the ministry to make those judgments. Again, I say, as I have before, there is nothing anywhere in the Bible where God left any judgment of this kind of thing up to a majority of the people. To say in Matthew 18 that it is to go before the church and to read into that that it is to go to a vote of the people is wrong. And it does not fit Deuteronomy 19 or other passages. God always had a constituted authority that they were to take matters uh, of relationships to, whether it was Moses and those that he appointed as judges, or whether it was the king later, or wherever, God always had elders or uh, men who were dealing with the law to deal with those issues. So I think Deuteronomy 19 should always be considered when people try to interpret Matthew 18, because this passage is the basis for which Christ made that uh, statement in Matthew 18. And be very aware or beware of passing along or creating any false accusation. God hates false accusation. He even hates true accusation. Let me give you an example. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, anything that he sees that we might do, he continually takes before God the Father to accuse us of. It is a motive designed to hurt or to destroy us. And he takes advantage of everything. He has no mercy. He has no compassion. He has no patience. He has no love. He wants to destroy us. His motive is to hurt us before God in any way that he possibly can. So if we allow ourselves any motivation where we would set our hand or our tongue to hurt or harm someone, then we have a satanic attitude, a satanic motive. And we're to flee the devil, to have nothing to do with it. We take it lightly when we accuse people, or when we talk about them, or spread rumors about them, or try to find something wrong with them. We excuse it for whatever reason we come up with. But let's understand, that is, in itself, idolatry. We put ourselves as the judge above God. That is idolatry. Anytime we gossip, backbite, 
spread rumors, talk about in a negative way God's children, and especially as God's called out spiritual children, we are committing idolatry. The first and greatest sin against God. Maybe we need to understand some things in that context as opposed to so easily running off at the mouth about each other. Think about it. Anytime you lay your tongue on someone that is God's chosen child, especially anyone in the church, you are damaging the relationship with that person. You could damage the relationship with God, and you are certainly damaging your relationship to them if they find out what it is that you're saying about them. And that's not loving your brothers yourself. It breaks all ten commandments. Now, I know the tongue is the hardest thing there is to control, and the brain behind the tongue. Sometimes they're not very connected, I understand that, but still in all, uh, James said, if you can control the tongue, you're a perfect person, and none of us do, and we're far from perfection. It's really easy to point out other people's errors, faults, sins, lacks, deficiencies, instead of concentrating on fixing our own. So we get ourselves into business that really is not our business, but somebody else's business. And God exacts penalty for that. Notice that in this context, we are to be very, very careful that we do not present a false witness in any way. And if it so happens, then God holds us responsible, and requires a penalty on us. Not on the person. On us. All right, let's go to chapter 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and a people more than you, be not afraid of them, for the eternal your God is with you, which brought you up out of the land of Mitzrayim. And it shall be, when you are come near to the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. This is a very interesting passage. You would think, if you were going to war, you would want every able-bodied man that you could find, you would draft them, conscript them, whatever, to come and join in the war effort. But that wasn't God's way. Even if they did go to war, which he allowed them to do in the Old Testament under circum certain circumstances, and we're not allowed to do that at all in the New Testament, John 18:36. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, but my kingdom is not of this world, therefore my servants do not fight. So fighting, creating war, or going to war, is illegal in the New Testament for Christians. God is there to fight our battles for us. And even because of the hardness of their hearts and various other reasons he allowed certain things in the Old Testament, he still put certain roadblocks or limits on what they were to do. And here's a case in point. 
all right, you're going to go to war. You should trust God if this is a just war. And there were times he told his people, do not go to war. And if they did, they were defeated. In cases, he told them, go to war. And if they did, they were successful. So doing what God says is always the key issue. Always the key issue. The first sin in the garden was idolatry. And in fact, the first sin had to do with food. We don't like people to talk about the food we eat, but that was the first sin. That fruit on that tree looks good, and it might even taste good. But it was forbidden. It was something God said, do not eat. So they put their appetite or their possible pleasure ahead of God and created or caused or committed idolatry. Putting something that might feel or taste good to them ahead of God's instruction. Anytime we put ourselves and our desires ahead of God's instruction, we are committing idolatry. Even in what we put in our mouths. Anyway, he said, don't fear them. I brought you out of Mitzrayim. I delivered you at the Red Sea, and I'm about to deliver you at the River Jordan. So, don't fear your enemies. Fear me. Verse 2, And it shall be, when you are come near to the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day to battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not. And do not tremble, neither be you terrified because of them. Now, I said in the New Testament we're not to go to war against our enemies in that sense. But, let's consider Micah 4 and 5, that passage there, where he says seven, even eight leading men will go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. This is our land, and this is... Ephraim, this is where the Assyrian and his coalition of nations is going to come. We are to go out against them. But notice, seven or eight men against, let's say, pick a number, 100,000, is not going to be a warfaring force. It is God who will turn them away and send them packing, even as he did in the days of Gideon where they never fired a shot, or loosed an arrow, if you will, but simply carried the vases and broke them and yelled. And the Assyrians killed each other and ran. Well, the ones that got killed didn't run, but the rest ran, I think, as I remember the story. So, what God is saying here applies here at the end time. The two witnesses also are going to go out against all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, But they don't take a gun or a sword or a suitcase bomb with them. God, by miracle, causes fire to come out of their mouths and incinerate those who would harm them in any way up until the last battle, and then they're killed, of course. So what he's saying here, when you go into battle, and God has said his people will at the end time go into battle 
but under very controlled circumstances against specific peoples, and he will do all the fighting and do all the delivering. Not our nation going to fight Iraqis or Afghans or Iranians or Chinese or whoever we choose to bomb this week. So the people, or the priest, was to approach and speak to the people. And shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day to battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts be faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be you terrified because of them. In other words, the just shall live by faith. The seven, even eight principal men of Micah will walk out before a well-armed army in faith. The two witnesses will have to face all the armies of the entire world in faith, knowing that God will take care of the situation until the time he has decreed that they shall die and then they will. But he tells them that ahead of time, see. Tells us all that. For the eternal your God is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So always look to God and do not fear the enemies that come against us, from within or from without, for that matter. Isaiah 8 covers that. I've mentioned it many times and read it several times. Don't fear the conspiracy or the confederacy or the coalition or whatever you want to call it that is about to come against Israel, I mean this nation of Israel soon, because we are the great Babylon Mystery the Great, the great horror of Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18, who hammer all the nations of the earth. It isn't about Israel in the Middle East. It's about Ephraim, who is supposed to be the leader of all the nations of Israel. Anyway, verse 5, And the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there that has built a new house and has not dedicated it, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. So he's giving people every out, we'll see, if they didn't want to go to war in a war that God had advocated or allowed. They hadn't had their house warming yet and moved in. Go back. Don't go to war. And what man is he that has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. So if you've planted a vineyard and you haven't enjoyed your wine or your fresh grapes yet, don't go to war. Go home. And what man is there that has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. So, even if you've got a sweetheart that you want to marry, uh, you're allowed to stay home. Don't go fight. This sounds a little bit like Gideon, doesn't it? Where he started out with thousands and thousands of men and said, well, those of you in this category go home. God's kept separating them out. So finally, the last test, I think it was, was how they drank water out of the creek. Did they keep watch by scooping up and drinking out of their hands so their eyes were up where they were alert and could see an enemy? Or did they bow down and lap it like a cow or a dog uh, with their eyes down at the water? That was the final test. And only 300 passed that one. The whole point was, God was going to deliver them. It wasn't their own strength, their own might, their own 
training their own weapons but God. So he reduced it down to 300 to make sure that they couldn't take credit for anything that occurred. And that is the gist of this. If you're fearful, if you have other things that are going on in your life and you don't want to go, don't have to go. This would cut your army down a whole lot. You know what? Verse 8, And the officers shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Is there anybody out here and you assembled men who is afraid to go into war and is afraid to go up against people with spears and axes and bows and arrows and whatever they were carrying. Is any man afraid to do that? Well, that, if everybody was honest, that would cut your force down a whole lot, you know what? How many men are not afraid to go into battle against guns and tanks and bombs and airplanes? Not very many. If anybody is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. In other words, cowardice spreads very quickly. And if you're standing there with wet palms and scared to death and trembling all over and say, Oh man, this scares me. Well, you know, talk like that scares somebody else. So, cowardice and fear spreads just like negativity and anger between people. It spreads very rapidly. And it shall be, when the officers have made an end of speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. In other words, it was basically anybody that wants to go home, go. Pretty much the way this boils down. So, God had rules of warfare. When you come near to a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace to it. In other words, avoid war and conflict wherever possible. We need to do that between different groups of the church today, between our brothers and sisters within the church. They needed to do it even with their neighbors in cities removed from them. Try to work out peace. And it shall be. If it make you answer, if they make, or if it, the city, make you answer of peace and open to you, open their gates, their hearts, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries to you and they shall serve you. So they were offered peace. And if they decided they had rather have peace with you rather than fight you or defend their city, and they opened their gates and allowed you to come in, then they were to be tributary or uh, mildly slaves, I guess you would have to say. They would pay taxes. They would be within your circle of government or governorship, and you would probably send governors there to govern their city. They would no longer be allowed to govern themselves, but would be tributary or an ally under bond to you. They had that option. Verse 12, And if it will make no peace with you, but will make war against you, then you shall besiege it. So it all has to do with their attitude. If they want to be peaceful and accept tributary, 
uh, fine. If not, then you were to go ahead and defeat them. And when the Eternal your God has delivered it into your hands, you shall smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. So if they did not seek peace and offer it, and you did besiege it, every male was to be killed. But the women and the little ones, now when it says little ones, he does not make uh, a distinction here, whether it was little boys and little girls, or only little girls, because in the verse before, it said every male. Now, did that mean every adult male, or did it mean every male? That's what it says in so many words. I'm not sure of the intent. So, it is a possibility, I think, here, unless another scripture that I don't think of or am unaware of would uh, shed more light on it, that the women and the little girls uh, would, could be preserved. And the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shall you take to yourself, and you shall eat the spoil of your enemies which the eternal your God has given you. Now, this is interesting. Let's read on, and then I'll come back to this a little bit. Verse 15, You shall do, uh, thus shall you do to all the cities which are very far off from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, but of the cities of these people which the eternal your God does give you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the eternal your God has commanded you. So when they went into the land that God had given to Abraham, they were to destroy every man, woman, child, and beast, everything that breathed. And yet, with cities that were far off, they could kill all the males, but retain the women and girls, at least the girls, maybe little boys, I'm not sure on that. But even little boys grow up. And if they have a grievance against you, when they reach warrior age, that might come back on you as well, if they want vengeance. So... I think it is very possible that God meant, when he, when he said all males, he meant even boy babies. But the women and girls, you were to take back with you. Now, why the disparity there? When they were going into the promised land, they were to kill everything that breathed. He doesn't say animals here. He does say, he's speaking of people, I guess, in this particular context. There are places where he does say all animals as well. And to take no spoil. Now why here would all these people have to die, women and children as well, and these out here, you could spare the women and at least the girls and take them home and make them your wives and let them grow up and become wives. we put other scriptures with it and think it through, this was not a matter of race. 
Uh, these people who inhabited the land, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, and so on, were of a different race than Israel, basically of the peoples of Ham, who were in the land when Abraham got there. Those within, those borders that Joshua would be dividing up, were all to die, everyone that had breath. But someone outside that land, a city far off, the women could be spared. Now, they would have also been a different race. So this is not an issue of racial, or or a racial issue at all. It is a religious issue. They were not to allow those people to live within that area that would be the culture and the social network of Israel because they would cause them to turn astray and follow other gods. It was, here again, a matter of idolatry. Those from far away, if allowed to live, the women, and brought back as wives would come into the culture of Israel that was supposed to be serving and obeying and worshiping the true eternal God. And they would accept the culture, the religion, the society that they were brought into under a husband who would make sure that they served God. And there would not be warriors who were also brought in or men who could cause any uh, interruption of that. So God allowed that. This is a big issue, but if we put all the scriptures together, where God caused people to get rid of their wives, if they had married outside of Israel, was at times of renewal, essentially, when They had been in paganism and idolatry, had been taken captivity, as in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's a passage like that there. And God was trying to reestablish his preeminence as the only true God. He caused them to put away any of different peoples or races that they had married outside Israel. So he could establish himself as God among them again. At other times, he allowed them, as in Deuteronomy 19, to bring in racially disparate peoples and marry them. Raise their little girls as wives for their sons. It all came down to religion. The same is true in the New Testament. I defy you to find a scripture in the New Testament which prohibits or forbids interracial marriage. You can't find one. You do find, 1 Corinthians 7, a very definite command not to marry outside the religion, outside the truth. That is very definite. So it was a matter of religion, not race, Probably in every case, though there is a lot to debate between different scriptures, and I don't have time to go into all that today, and I'm not sure I'm prepared to entirely anyway, because some of those things are a little bit confusing. But that's what this boils down to, and that is the New Testament 
issue as well. Are they spiritual Israelites or not? We are not to marry outside spiritual Israel. That's why we don't date outside spiritual Israel, because it leads to more involvement and ultimately can happen, it can happen that we marry outside the church. And that is an absolute no-no in God's eyes in the New Testament. He doesn't say it for race, but spiritual, the church, spiritual Israel is the key, not physical Israel. Somebody comes, let's say they're one's black, one's white, one's brown, one's yellow, whatever, and says, can we get married? I would have a tough time with New Testament scripture saying, no, God forbids that. If they said, prove to me in the Bible, especially the New Testament, and maybe even the Old Testament, that I shouldn't marry this person of a different race, I would be hard-pressed to prove that to them. Now, is it wise, based on things that are extant in our society with prejudices and various things? Maybe, maybe not. And if they do go ahead and marry, if there are issues culturally, then they will have some built-in issues that they will have to deal with, which could cause that marriage to go on the rocks. But that's not just racial. That can be educational levels, which cause an inequity that might be hard to cause the relationship to thrive in. Let's say you had a six foot three woman who weighed 135 pounds, and she wanted to marry a man who was five foot three and weighed 300 pounds. Can you say that's wrong for them to marry? No, but I can see a little button I might want to push that says pause and think this through. Because there is a built-in dynamic there that could cause them to have difficulties down the road. You see what I mean. That's perhaps a very bizarre analogy, or, and, and it doesn't happen very often. But there can be other issues where it may be legal, but would it be wise? Would it be smart? Would it be the thing to do because of built-in difficulties that simply are going to be there? At, you know, uh, intelligence levels. One might have an IQ of 80, and the other one might have one of, I, of 140. I think that there's a built-in difficulty there that is going to cause that relationship to have serious trouble. So there are things pertaining to wisdom as opposed to what is the law. But the law is, do not marry outside the church. God wants us to be able to worship Him without any idolatry, without any distraction, without anything that we can possibly prevent that would pull us away from Him. So that's why He made these rules the way He did in the Old Testament. And there is a distinct risk if people are living within, let's say physically, Israel itself, or whether or not they are brought in from far off, there is much less chance of that causing people to go into idolatry than if they are living within, physically within your culture. 
Now, even that can be a problem. Witness Solomon, who brought in women from all over the world, and they, bringing their religions with them, caused his heart to turn from God. So there's a certain amount of risk, no matter what. But God allowed certain things that were less risky than those that were severely risky. But in the New Testament, he makes it very clear, marrying outside the church is way too risky. Do not even think about going there because it is so easy to be pulled away from God. We commit idolatry so very easily, don't we? Let's consider idolatry. Do you know that it could be idolatry to go in and buy a Big Mac? Do you ever think of that as a sin of idolatry? Or pick whatever you want to pick. You know, before you go in there, there is nothing, nothing on their menu that is good for you. It might taste good. You might be addicted to it. You might like it, but it's not going to be good for your body. We are a nation that is beginning to have the plagues of Egypt. Cancer, heart disease, diabetes... And even the world around us recognizes that these processed foods cause those diseases. Even the mayor of New York was going to limit the size of a soda because he knows it's not good for you. And he ran into a world of controversy and hurt over it about what our rights are and so on. This isn't necessarily about our rights, brethren. God has created our bodies in the image of God, and we are to take care of them and nurture them and nourish them according to his laws, and we are to honor the temple of the Holy Spirit, our bodies. He does not want us to be sick. He does not want us to be afflicted. He does not want us to have disease. But if we do the things that cause affliction and disease, and it has been proven within our society that it so does, it becomes unclean to us. Now, God has given us a list of animals that he created that are clean and a list that are unclean. Now, he wants us to learn a spiritual lesson there is that some things are good for you and some are not. Do not partake of those things which are not. And he uses pigs and oysters as an example of that. Now the same can be applied in principle to our modern society. There are things which we can raise. It's, it's getting increasingly difficult. I understand that. But we don't just wave it and throw it away and not do our very best to put in our bodies that which is the least harmful or the most beneficial for them. That should be our goal, our attitude, and our motive. And things which harm our body thereby are unclean to us. It's not a matter of desiring what we want and going there, and it's none of your business preacher to tell me what I should and shouldn't eat. 
No, it's not, in that sense, my job to tell you a Big Mac is okay, but a Burger King is not, or whatever. It is my job to tell you that you are supposed to only take into your body those things which are good for you, and those within moderation. Some things are bad for us, to one degree or another, in any amount. Soda, pop, diet or sugared, and the diet is actually more dangerous, cancer-wise and so on. It's an even greater poison. There is no redeeming value in it. It is poison, through and through. It's not good for your body. So if you, understanding that, and you do, even Mayor Bloomberg knows that, then it becomes idolatry to put it in your body. It is a sin against God. It is a sin against the body that he gave you to imbibe of things that are not good for your health. And he even makes rules regarding those things which are good for your health. He tells us certain meats are good. Alcohol is good for us. Grains are good for us if they're not GMO and on and on and on it goes, chemically treated. But those things have been designed by God for us to eat in their natural state. But you know what? You can eat the very best organically grown food that there is on earth that could be found at any cost. And if you eat too much of it, you'll get fat. Your health will go downhill. So, then it's a matter of this is okay to eat, but I must do it in moderation. You can get the best alcoholic beverages available on earth, and God says they're okay to drink. But if you drink too much of them, you can get drunk, and you can do things you shouldn't do, or you could kill your neighbor or yourself. So it's wrong to take too much, even of a good thing, but of some things you should not partake at all because they are a curse upon our nation and upon the world and upon your body. So you need to use intelligence, education, and proper logic to come to understand those things which are dangerous to your body that can cause diabetes, cancer, heart disease, MS, you name it, and refrain from doing it. Because if you do it, knowing it is unclean or deleterious or bad for your body, then you are putting your appetite, your desire for fulfillment and whatever your taste buds desire, ahead of God and what is good for the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore it is idolatry. And if you covet those things which are bad for you, the tenth commandment is also idolatry as Colossians points out. So let's think about these things. God, through all these passages in Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible, is trying to resolve the biggest issue and the first issue that he ever had with mankind. <coughs> that is putting their appetites, their desires, in any form ahead of him.
So, with the fruit in the garden, they put that ahead of him. That was idolatry. We do it in so many, many ways. We are our own idol. The biggest idol we have to put out of our lives is self. And it has to do with the things that we put in our body, food or drink. It has to do with moral issues. It has to do with uh, social issues. It has to do with any kind of issue that affects human life or is a part of human life. God regulates every part of life. Every part of it in this book. And any time we put our desires, ourselves, our wants ahead of what he says, then that is idolatry. That's why he was so very careful. Israel was prone to idolatry. Do you realize that the Hittites, the Havites, uh, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and so on, would not have had to die if Israel would not have allowed them to take them away from God? Those people died because of Israel's selfishness and idolatry. They did not love them, their neighbors as themselves, and they did not love God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. So those entire races of peoples within that promised land, everything that breathed had to die because Israel was prone to put anything and everything ahead of God. If it were not for the problem of idolatry, they could have lived. So God allowed some who were far away, at least the women, to live because they would be brought into the society of Israel and learn to worship the true God, not pull people away from God. But even that was not foolproof. And Solomon proved that. It doesn't matter what God does, what rule he puts down. We, by nature, are enemies of God's way. And we will find any excuse, any reason to put what we want ahead of God's goals and purposes for us. Whether it be a moral issue, a dietary issue, a military issue, whatever it is, we want to do what we want to do. And we barely, barely control that. No, I won't say barely control. We don't control we work at it. We try. We get after ourselves when we infringe. But I think we need to understand that these are serious issues with God. So serious that he caused whole tribes of people to die to keep his people from going into idolatry. So is it any wonder that in the New Testament he says, I've called you to follow and serve me, given you my spirit, therefore do not marry outside the church or outside the faith. Because that will put a pull on you toward idolatry and Satan and the world. 
God is very serious about these matters. Now, as an American, we say, well, I can marry anybody I want. I'm a free moral agent, and I'm a free American. Well, you're not, but never mind. That's another issue. No, once we're called into God's way, we are slaves of Christ. We have to do everything according to God's way. And it is to be good for both us, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And it is to be good for our neighbors, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do has to be within the captivity of the words of the Father and the Son as expressed in this book. It is a total commitment. Total. We are slaves of Christ. Paul put it in those terms. We do his bidding, not follow our own desires. And when we fail, we ask for forgiveness and mercy and grace that we die not. Now, we're talking here on two levels. Spiritually, though we not die in the lake of fire, but that we may live forever. Physically, taking care of our bodies and our neighbors' bodies the best we can, so that we do not terminate our lives early physically because of disease and overindulgence in too much of the right things or any in the wrong things. We tend to want to justify ourselves. Well, I've had a hard week and I think I deserve something that isn't good for us. Or it isn't bad once in a while. Okay. If it's bad, isn't it bad? Is it okay to say it's okay for me to poison my body some of the time? It's not going to kill me today, and maybe it won't have an effect next week or next month. It's okay, I'll, I'll just have a little today, and a little more tomorrow. How many cigarettes can you smoke and taper off? How many have tried that? No, we want a little mollycoddling. We want a little sin. We want a little idolatry. We want to poison ourselves maybe a little at a time, if not a lot at a time. Okay, carry that logic out. We'll just have occasional adultery. We'll just kill someone once in a while. It's okay now and then. I mean, you know, if they really need it. It's okay to talk against our brother or sister once in a while. I don't do it every day, all day, but it's okay once in a while, isn't it? I just can't stand this. I've got a vent. No. It's wrong any time. Think about it. And think about all the people that had to die in ancient Israel because they would lead people into idolatry. And we commit idolatry every day of our lives, brethren. Every one of us, in some form or another, puts himself, his comfort, his desires, 
ahead of God and what we need to be doing. We procrastinate on doing things that would benefit us spiritually. And we rush into things sometimes that do not benefit us physically or spiritually. It's so easy to sin. It's so easy to commit idolatry. It is so hard to worship God and put Him above everything, heart, mind, body, and soul. That's tough. And it means we have to change. In every area of life, I've only picked on a few today. The whole point is, verse 18, that they teach you not to do after their abominations which they have done to their gods, so should you sin against the eternal your God. The world around us tempts us on the internet, on the TV, on the radio, on the phone, wherever we go. It tempts us to eat, to watch, to do things that are contrary to the law of God. It teaches us by association and war games and movies to accept weird, demented beings or imaginated beings that are demonic. God created animals and people in the image of God. Hollywood creates games and movies based on gargoyles and uh, weird-looking things that were not created by God, but that are twisted and satanic. That's why movies that have to do with any of those types of entities, be they fictional or real, or games that we play on computers that have that kind of issues is wrong. And nearly all those games and movies have to do with violence and killing. Now, we may justify it by saying, well, I'm destroying evil. (laughs) I'm destroying evil. (laughs) No. You're cozying up to evil. You're playing with evil. You're playing games about evil beings, satanic beings. And they are conditioning you to accept those beings when they invade the earth as opposed to serving the loving, eternal God. We need to understand that. God tells us to flee from Satan, not play war games against him. Those games are satanic, demonic, and have nothing to do with God. Can we grasp and understand that? They become idols. Because God doesn't want us to war. We are not to kill. And yet, we simulate or play-act killing and violence in our games. And that is murder by motive. Yes, it's a game, but it conditions the mind, and it affects you and your emotions, and it pulls you away from peace, love, security, and the fruit of the Spirit into the demonic world of Satan 
of kill, destroy, get rid of, vengeance, and so on. Let's understand why Star Wars, that's an old one, was wrong. Because it pitted normal-looking human beings against weird entities. Satan and his demons are weird entities. They are non-human, and as they exist today, were not created by God. They originally were, but they got twisted and demented and ungodly and idolatrous. And we are to have nothing to do with them today, either real or simulated. And simulating it opens your mind, to one degree or another, to the influence of Satan the devil. And that is something you cannot afford. It is hard enough. This is an ongoing battle we have had since Adam and Eve, is to put God first in our lives, and it doesn't matter what it is, which commandment it breaks. Moral sins of sex, uh, lethal sins of murder, lying, stealing, whatever. It's so easy to justify it as, well, this is good against evil, I'm going to fight. Well, God says his servants of the New Testament don't even fight against evil. They don't go to war against evil. So to do that in games is tantamount to the same thing in attitude and motive. People had to die in the Old Testament because they drew people, God's people, away from God. And we will die physically and ultimately eternally if we allow ourselves by the world and Satan around us to draw us away from God. Let's get this down to brass tacks. The whole point, verse 18, is that they teach you not to do after their abominations. Verse 19, when you shall besiege a city a long time in making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them, for you may eat of them, and you shall not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life to employ them in the seed. So you couldn't cut fruit trees down even in a legal war. Only the trees which you know that they be not trees for food, you shall destroy and, and cut them down, and you shall build bulwarks against the city that makes war with you until it be subdued. So they were not to destroy the land in the capacity of people to eat or be starved to death. But it was fair to use other types of trees in a legal war. Well, I've gone long enough here I'm trying to explain some things and apply the principle to now so let's stop there for today